Prior to COVID, I was having conversations with people in Washington, D.C. All of the regulators were coming for ISAs. There's a whole body of law that protects consumers in basically financial matters. And if there is a new innovative way that they see companies attempting to exploit or in their mind exploit consumers, they're going to march on it and regulate it because that's what they do. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey, everybody. Ish here, joined by Sean Linehan, co-founder and CEO of Placement.com. Sean, so great to have you here. Would you be able to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yeah, great to, to, to be here, Ish. Good to yeah, chat with you about all things education. Really excited to, to, be, a, to be a part of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, Sean, you've been on my radar for a while. I've just always loved kind of the concept of placement and you guys have quite a bit of iteration. So I'm going to be interested in talking about that. I'm going to be really interested to talk about the viral tweet that you had that went out a few months ago talking about ISAs and why they didn't work out and your guys' experimentation with it. But before we get into that juicy concept, why don't we just talk, start with kind of your background and how you made your way into discovering the idea for placement? Totally. So my, I grew up in a place called San Bernardino, California. San Bernardino is east of LA. It's really the industrial exurb that feeds the Los Angeles metro region. So they're think heavy in logistics, infrastructure, warehousing, fulfillment centers, that type of stuff. From there, I went to UC Berkeley really on a whim. Thank you to the UC system for sponsoring people that don't have a lot of money. I wound up in the basically the heart of Silicon Valley, much to my surprise, but also delight. At Berkeley, I studied business. I also jumped right into startups. Within three weeks of getting to, to Berkeley, I joined a, a startup called Modify Watches and fell in love. I, I wound up doing software engineering for them. So I was the, their director of technology, running all things e-commerce. Uh, I studied business, but I was a self-taught engineer. After Berkeley, I joined a, a little company called Flexport. I joined as the fourth software engineer when the company was about 20 people and had just raised their seed round. I ultimately became the VP of product there, helped grow the team from product management from just one person to 15 people. I also oversaw the product design uh, and brand design team, as well as our product operations team. While I was there, I helped grow the company from 1 million in cumulative revenue to a half a billion in annual revenue and up to... Uh, 800 employees. So it was quite a journey. I then left Flexport and started placement. And that really was the consequence of some macroeconomic research that I had done. So this was 2019, back in the before times, pre-COVID. And one of the big things that I was thinking about was the fact that had I never left my hometown, I would never have accomplished anything. So I was coming off this incredible journey with Flexport and thinking, Wow, like how fortunate I was that the, the UC system pulled me up into this economic powerhouse of the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was asking myself, what about all the people that didn't happen to all the people that were left behind and incredibly talented people that just weren't living up to their full potential because they were in the wrong place. And that was the origin of placement. We, we started the business with the idea that we were going to help finance people's relocations to better economic geographies by physically moving them, providing them with job search training. Think about it like a finishing school and financing the whole thing using an income share agreement. 
And I, I said I, it started with some macroeconomic research that I had done. I basically pulled tons of publicly available data from uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, other government sources, the census, IPOMs, whatever, and had found that, yes, there actually was risk-free, cost-of-living-adjusted income arbitrages that could be achieved if you moved people with the right skills from the wrong region to the right region. And so we started the company to, to basically help people achieve that outcome. Yeah. And, and I, I love the concept when I first saw it. I, I remember having a lot of friends at the time who were really unhappy with their jobs. And it just seemed like obvious to me that, oh, yes, no, there, there definitely is this arbitrage. And, and to some degree, like I think a lot of most great companies revolve some form of arbitrage, which is, look, there is this underserved market and there's a, a cheap way to deliver the service or product that they need. And how can we connect these two? And that is the essence of any great company is finding that arbitrage. And this seemed like an obvious one. What was also, I thought, really innovative was leveraging the ISA, which, again, I think this just comes down to circumstance. Like, and this was also, I wonder how much of this was the fact that ISAs were getting really hot. I think, like, we look at 2017 to 2019, we've mapped out boot camp history. Obviously, App Academy, and we've had Kush Patel come on and talk about how, in a lot of ways, they invented the modern version of the ISA. But... It was really Austin Allred, who very prolific a Twitter personality who really popularized it. And so 2017 onwards, tons and tons of boot camps starting up leveraging this ISA model. So I think just it's interesting that like you have this placement as a service, which is this arbitrage for job opportunities and you leveraged an ISA model. But something tells me that like the model could have potentially also worked without an ISA as well. Why did you guys choose to pursue the ISA? Yeah, on the, on the origins of the ISA out of intellectual you know, curiosities, it actually was the first I've, the, the, the earliest recorded conceptualization that I've seen of it is from Milton Friedman's famous book, Capitalism and Freedom, where he basically was going through the different funding methodologies for educating the public. And he claimed that for vocational school, that an income share agreement type arrangement would be the best solution. And he didn't he didn't call it an income share agreement, but he described the modern day income share agreement. And his idea there was uh, the public shouldn't fund debt for education that is vocational in nature because the only vocational school that you should do are the ROI positive ones. And if a school really believes that they are providing ROI positive education, then the school should take the risk and the participant should pay ultimately what might be higher prices at the tail end of the education. Yeah, the boot camps then took that idea and, and ran with it and, and implemented it. We, we were at, I would say, the, the like remix phase of ISAs. Every idea has these different phases where somebody comes up with the first big use case and then smart founders then remix the hell out of it. Uber starts ride sharing and then you get Uber for everything. We were in the ISA for everything phase. 2019, the big venture trend was the future of work. Everybody was starting future of work companies. So we were sort of part of that cohort of founders. We chose income share agreements because we wanted to de-risk the experience for the people that we were working with. The, the way that our income share agreement, we wrote our own. So a lot, of, a lot of folks, a lot of the boot camps now that do use them work with underwriting providers that provide contracts and everything else. We, we actually wrote our own to be very specific. We wanted to make sure that people that worked with us only paid us if we got them a sort of hedonically adjusted 
increase in their life. So we, we did a cost of living adjusted raise guarantee. So when somebody started working with us, they'd say, hey, I live in Milwaukee and I'm looking for a new job. Where should I, where should I move to? And we would then say, uh, you should live in Denver, but Denver's more expensive. But the, the rise in income that you're going to get is so much that even considering the cost of living adjustment, you're still going to wind up better off. We did that honestly because it was sounded good and it was great marketing. Telling somebody, hey, you only pay us if it works and works means that you're richer at the end of it. It was a lot easier to get people to talk to us because it was risk-free. It also meant that we put the onus on ourselves to deliver great outcomes. If you put the onus, if when you design incentive alignment systems, you can internalize pain or externalize pain. If you externalize pain, you don't have that same type of feedback loop that causes you to improve. The only feedback loop you have is somebody complaining to you and then maybe you action that or maybe you don't. When you directly feel the pain of your own incompetence, you are moved to action with a much greater level of intensity than if you weren't feeling that pain. So we wanted to be good at what we did. And in order to do that, we decided to internalize all of the pain and all of the risk of failure. And that's why you guys chose to pursue an ISA. That's right. And, and on paper, ISA sounded so great. And we talked about this. I think in the early days of the podcast, we would just go home about how like ISAs were really like the panacea. I'm probably being a little bit naive, but like in terms of, yes, it, it completely de-risks uh, the situation for students. And then if you're successful, you only pay if you're successful. And it just, I think the biggest thing is like at this time period, people were also hyper aware in terms of how colleges were failing. I, I think everybody's aware that like with colleges, like it's very much a different game where you're paying them up front. And so the idea is, are they really motivated to get you the outcomes that you care about? They're not. And that's why the outcomes have been getting worse, because I think there's it seems like there's this inverse law where as you increase the size of classes, the quality of outcomes tend to go down. This seems to be uh, across all the interviews we've done. This seems to be natural law that exists. And so while when numbers are small, you can get away with it. But as you start to scale, quality gets worse. And, and, and with universities, I think it's about 50 worse, 51% of graduates either don't land a job or land a job that doesn't require a college degree. So just from that, you can see that, look, like something's not working. Boot camps come along. They're like, look, we're going to teach you industry relevant skills from experts in a fraction of the time. And then you only pay us if you're successful. That sounds perfect on paper. Talk us about all the ways that it didn't end up working out. Totally. Yeah. I, on the college piece, Bloom's Two Sigma problem says that one-on-one -on -one learning has two standard deviation, higher levels of effectiveness than group learning. And you'd expect that one, if one teacher per two students, maybe not two standard deviations, but maybe one point something. I'm just postulating here. And you can assume that as you increase the N per instructor, that it, you basically fall further and further away from that median. So not surprising that when you have a thousand students in a classroom, the quality of the education is dramatically worse than when you have five students in a classroom. The, the ways that the ISAs didn't work for us were multitudinous. There was so many. Yeah, first, the first thing was we underestimated the human psychological makeup. This sounds dumb in hindsight and obvious in hindsight, but you, it's not something that people really talk about. When you make something risk-free for a person, they opt in, even if their commitment levels are very low. Why would they opt in? Why not? Like you basically are promising to, to do this thing for me. And sure, I have to commit some time, but I also could not commit that time and not owe you anything. 
So in the, it's basically people, a lot of the folks that we interviewed were, were more or less taking an option on pursuing this as opposed to dedicating themselves to pursue it. Now, some of the boot camps solved this problem through very intense marketing, being like, you're going to go all in. That was Lambda's thing. Go all in. Uh, and it was very it, it, intentional psychological marketing to say that this is a serious commitment that you're making and you'll fail if you aren't, if you don't actually make the, the commitment. And so you try to screen people out at the top of funnel. We tried to screen people out at the top of funnel through psychometric testing at scale. So people that applied for our program were, con- we did aptitude tests on them. And in some cases, we also did personality tests. And then we talked to them live. And the goal there was to basically develop two things, a profile of their background. So that was all automated and collected. And then a profile of their future, which was predicted by their skills that they already had and the way that they performed on our tests. There was also, to some extent, a attempt to say, if we add friction here, the people that get to the other side of this are more serious than somebody that it that isn't willing to take a 15-minute test because the amount of time investment that someone's going to take in relocating across the country is big. So that was one... Those tests, part of it was, I don't think that we were as religious about following what the tests said. So we let in some people that maybe the test would say we shouldn't have. There was a large narrative at the time that psychometric testing is biased and bad and you shouldn't use them because they're biased. And so we, we experimented with not listening to the tests because we thought, well, maybe, that, maybe there's some truth to that and, and maybe we should try letting in people that that our, our underwriting criteria otherwise would say not to let in. to And that didn't really work out for us. The other thing is that people have a lot going on in their lives. So we were promising money. And what was interesting was that people would come in and be like, oh, actually, I don't really care that much about the money. I just want to move because my wife just got a new job in this new city. And I just kind of want to, I got I to gotta go there. The other thing was people get cold feet. So like we'd get pretty close to the end and then they'd say, ah, never mind. Our, with our model, we couldn't force somebody to actually do it, right? They're relocating. And, and yeah, so if we, if we couldn't force them. So that was also a problem. It, the, the biggest thing is that you wind up taking on tons and tons of counterparty risk. And humans are diverse in their ways of flaking and failing. Like, we thought if we b- developed the best possible program, like a foolproof program that we know works then we'll have people come through the program and everything will work. Well, we did have a great program. The consequence, though, was that a lot of people just didn't follow it. They weren't willing to do the hard work that it took to to actually complete the program. And then there was not really any downside if they didn't finish. They'd just bail and they wouldn't owe us anything because their cost of living, they didn't have a cost of living adjusted raise. And so the costs, the downside costs of quitting were very low. So those were some of them. There, there's plenty, plenty more, but I'll pause. I'll pause there. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all like tremendously great points. And it's interesting because like around the time your tweet came out is you were already seeing all the boot camps that figured this out. Everybody realized like everybody had tried ISAs. Everybody had figured out the ways that it wasn't working. And so then they were counteracting that. And so Lambda School, one of the original programs that kind of really popularized the ISA, started to move away from it in that there was like an upfront deposit. And you could get this deposit back, but if you really look at the fine, like the, the fine print, it is very hard to get that refund. They call it this outcome 
based loan. It essentially means that if it doesn't work out, if you don't land a job, but also you have to have been applying for about, I think it's 10 jobs every week and be making five GitHub contributions for 10 out of 12 months, which no, nobody's going to get that refund. That is just like such a high bar that I think while it sounds outcome-based and risk-free, it, it really isn't. Yeah, it's and for, so for, for theirs, it's it, 50, for 50 weeks in a 52-week period, you have to follow yeah. their like 10 steps. Yeah. And th there's more than the ones that you said. You also have to like do a X number of outreaches. There's, it's pretty strict. What we learned was that you can solve the problem in uh, a couple ways, right? You can require money up front, right? So you make users or people, your customers put skin in the game, make them put some amount of skin in the game. So doing that though, you like instantly filter out most of the group of people that you were originally trying to help. The other thing that you can do is you can be extremely draconian. So the big problem with ISAs is that administering education is expensive, full stop, period. That's why you need to finance it, right? The reason why you have to finance education is because education costs a lot of money. Education's not like an insanely profitable business. It is maybe when the government is financing it and there's no like the, that model. But if you're like teaching is expensive, period, right? So you have this situation where teaching is expensive. You want to find ways to finance it for people. But if you're like in a debt game, like in a venture game, so let's phrase it up as a venture bet, as a venture bet versus a debt bet. If I'm investing in a company, if I'm in a VC and I'm investing in 10 companies, if one of those companies goes 100x, I don't really care if any of the other ones return any money. Like if they do, great. But if they go to zero, that's totally fine. And venture investing works because you have the possibility to have a 100x outcome. In debt investing, let's say that I'm making a debt-based investment. If I'm earning 7% per year or 15% per year or 20% per year, if one of my investments out of 10 goes to zero, I might make zero dollars. I might lose money. So the, you have to protect your downside because your upside is super capped. In ISAs, all of them have capped upsides. So you have equity-like downside in that you, you can go to zero and you really don't want to go to zero. Going to zero is very bad because you'll lose all your money and the amount of money that you're losing is non-trivial. But you don't have equity-like upsides. You have debt-like upsides, right? So it's like you're making 15%, not 100x. In that case, this, these economics are really hard to deal with. You don't have parabolic returns or, or power law returns. The, the consequence there is that you basically only have a couple options. You either try to cap your downside by kicking people out as fast as possible when they begin to show any signs of weakness, or by radically reducing the cost of delivering education, at which point you're selling something that people think is high value and it's actually super low touch and you're using your other students to teach people and you're not actually providing like quality education. That's an uncharitable way to approach thinking about it. Maybe it's possible to provide it in a low cost way, but we maybe haven't cracked that nut yet. And the other side is you basically got to go full recourse and cap your downside by collecting on people that, that fail, which is what, what the solutions for ISAs look like. Taking a effectively non-refundable deposit caps your downside. But at this point, we basically took what we claimed to be equity investing in people and just made it debt investing with people with like less legal infrastructure. Like we've just reinvented debt, except it's worse. So I'm, I'm at that point, I'm like, let's, yeah, let's just call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And this is something you also talk about in your thread as well, which is this is debt. And one of the things that's really scary about ISAs is this is like looming regulatory threat. What does that mean? 
So prior to COVID, I was having conversations with people in Washington, D.C., and it was common knowledge that all of the regulators were coming for ISAs. And why were they coming for ISAs? There's a whole body of law that protects consumers in basically financial matters, specifically focused on on debt and what you're allowed to do for lending, how you're allowed to underwrite people for lending, how much interest you can charge, so on and so forth. There's all types of laws for that for very good reasons. ISAs don't technically fall under those rules because they're not technically debt contracts. The problem is that those regulatory bodies don't exist to, you know, arbitrate technocratic technicalities. They're, they're there to protect consumers. And if there is a new innovative way that they see companies attempting to exploit or in their mind exploit consumers, they're going to march on it and regulate it because that's what they do. It's similar to the SEC coming in and, and regulating crypto or attempting to regulate crypto. I guess the commodities board came and regulated crypto, but it's the same thing where it's okay. Yeah, there's innovation here and and sure you'll fly under the radar for a while, but we're going to come and regulate it because that's what we do. And it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, probably a duck. We're going to call it a duck. It was pretty clear that most of the existing body of law was going to wind up applying to, to ISAs. Now, COVID threw a big wrench in that. Basically, it was like full steam ahead on regulating ISAs and then COVID happened and everybody disappeared off the face of the planet and had much bigger problems to deal with than regulating ISAs. Uh, there was a lot of other issues that people were focused on. But now that the world is coming back, I, I would expect that another wave of ISA hype would very likely produce a very large wave of regulation as a sort of yeah. countervailing force. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things I really was you broke down in terms of like the unit economics of why ISAs don't work. I think I heard Austin already also at some point talking about this, which is in a lot of ways, ISAs is this bet that instead of taking kind of cash up front, that you'll take triple that amount, maybe if they're successful in two, three years, which is really problematic for a business because as an education business, you need capital up front to fund all the operations and the instructors that goes into delivering that education. So now if you aren't getting upfront cash, you're maybe getting more, but again, it's capped. Like you talked about, it's capped at maybe 2X, 3X, unlike venture capital, which can be 100X, the economics just don't work out there. And so I think this is where we started to see a lot of boot camps go back, where it's like, actually, we'll take the upfront cash. Like, that's more valuable to us. And, the, and you can actually make the unit economics work out there. Every business has, there's what's called the cash conversion cycle. And the cash conversion cycle is, uh, how many dollars do I have to put into the business to get more dollars out of it? And how long do I have to wait to do that? With ISAs, you structurally are investing all of the dollars up front and then getting them paid out slowly over time, which makes it a very bad business for small startup companies that don't have access to tremendous amounts of money. To his credit, I like Austin a lot. I think that he's a very smart person. He's done a lot of very interesting things, and I'm I'm still a, a big fan of Bloom. And to his credit, he did the only thing that you can possibly think to do, which is raise as much venture capital as possible, because you have this business that just consumes hordes of cash. And you can go, what you can do is you can bundle up all of your ISA contracts into securities and sell the the earnings off of them to investors. In order to do that, you need a whole body of outcomes data first. Like you need a bunch of cohorts of, of proven outcomes before investors are willing to invest in your thing at a rate that makes any sense. Still, it's, it's very expensive. 
even with even once you have good outcomes data. So yeah, you can go raise a bunch of money and burn cash up front. But if you're a smaller company, you can't really do that. And you can't like the math there's hard. It's imagine like if you're running, it's like running a retailer. If you have, if you're starting up and you want to build a store, you got to take a bunch of inventory and then you you sell that over time. That math is just really hard to make work. It's not impossible, but it's hard. If you're doing a hundred percent ISAs, it's like really hard. I think if you're, and there's some schools that do this, if you're like a 80% tuition-based school with 20% or 10% ISAs on the side to basically expand your applicant pool or get more diverse groups of folks, work with people that otherwise wouldn't be able to do it, that math actually might work for you. You make a little bit extra money in, in future periods and you're investing in the short run, but like 100% ISA schools are really hard to make work. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think one of the things maybe be here, I think you've already answered this question, but like the model of a only pay us if you're successful has worked in different verticals. So I'll give you a couple examples. One might be a company called do not pay, right? Where they'll fight bank fees for you or parking tickets. And if they win, they'll take 20% of that. Main Street does the same thing. They'll go out, they'll help you get R&D credits for your company. If they succeed, they'll take 20% of that. I say theoretically on the paper, the same thing. What's the difference here? Why does one model work when the other doesn't? Plenty of good reasons, mostly due to psychology. With do not pay, they're going to go and execute a process that you just don't know how to do and you wouldn't pay for because you don't trust them. And because you don't know them, you don't trust them, you don't know anything about this. Why would you pay them to do something? Like it's, it seems crazy, but they know that they can win. They know that they can make you money. And so with that company, they'll go out and do the thing for you. They have high confidence that their underwriting models make sense. And most of the dimensions that are required for success are within their control. ISAs are really hard because most of the dimensions that produce success are outside of the direct control of the the provider. What do I mean by that? The student's motivation is probably the number one input. And people can lie. People can have up weeks and down weeks, right? Like when you interview them the first time, they can be highly motivated and then things can go wrong in their life. For example, somebody like we had situations like somebody's mom died. Well, it's okay. Like that person's dropping out of the program. There's nothing that is, you know, that it is what it is. Or somebody got into a catastrophic accident. Like that person's dropping out of the program. And these are very good reasons. They're not bad reasons. I'm not saying that, you know, the, the, the people are bad. It's just that there's many outside conditions that can fail. Also, the cycle times are super long, right? So if I'm going to fight a ticket, I, I don't know the ticket thing specifically, but if the cycle times are short enough, you can iterate on that really fast and get good at underwriting with and you can also do a lot of volume with schools you can't do that much volume and it takes a long time to to cycle through those so it's like you do a cohort you do four cohorts a year or something you know if you're really aggressive six cohorts a year if you're like insanely aggressive 12 but still those cohorts take a while to percolate through and then they take even longer to get a job and so your rate of learning is pretty slow so you're not iterating that fast so there's, there's that, those are the two big things, right? There's a lot of things outside of your control and you're not learning fast enough. So in any business where you can, you're, most of the dimensions are within your control and your customer's marginal willingness to pay is basically zero, go for it. Like Main Street, for example, like I'm, I, we were a customer of Main Street. That insane, it was, it's like insanely complicated. Like it's like overly financial engineered. Like I'm a smart person who studied business and finance and like that model, we did it for a year and I was like, this is a mess. Like I'm never doing this again. I don't know. You're like, 
I feel like I was playing one of those street charlatan games with like <laughs> cups where you're like betting on where the thing is. And I was like, I have no, you guys are moving things in too many directions. I don't know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> it needs to be straightforward for it to make sense. Yeah, it needs to be, it needs to be straightforward. And I think that's the ultimately with the thing with education is that it's so complicated, right? Like it is and like with Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, you think about those businesses, right? Like it is not that difficult to train somebody to do that. And it, it's a repeatable task. That's the thing. Whereas education's not like you can't, like just have somebody onboard them in a day and then have them go teach a bunch of students and assume that, you know, that you're going to get the student from point A to point B. You know, with Uber, you're just driving them from point A to point B. Like education is a lot more complicated. Right. And I'll tell you what, by the way, just for the Uber example, because tech can play a big role here, right? Taxi driving in 1980 was an extremely highly skilled job. You had to have the geography of the city totally booted up into your brain. You had to have been doing it for long enough that you know the traffic patterns to do it optimally or at least semi-optimally. And when someone says, take me to 950 Broadway, where that is. Uber was possible because Google Maps made driving anywhere in any city a very low-skilled job. You didn't have to speak English. You you didn't even have to communicate with the the person. So there there was like a de-skilling element that allowed them to take that thing to a massive scale. And to some extent, there are educational opportunities in knowledge work where the jobs are semi-de-skilled enough that you actually can crank it out. Some folks would think that software engineering is that. I'm more skeptical. I do think that there are some technical opportunities, like learning how to be a like a WordPress dev or or learning how to, you know, configure an SAP instance. Like I think that there are like lower skilled jobs that are still in knowledge work that are still great earning opportunities that are closer to the uber model but like becoming a data scientist look there's a lot that goes into becoming a data scientist like the raw inputs necessary are very big yeah and sean there's so i literally talk about this topic for hours there's two things that i i think we're not going to be able to get to which i really wanted to bring up which was like how some institutions have like twisted and almost taken advantage of isas how basically like purdue like used isas and instead of giving out scholarships they replaced it with an isa and so it was like loans on top of an isa so that was bad also you talked about how like some organizations will package up isas and then sell them off which actually like defeats the purpose of isas and aligning incentives those are two topics like oh would love to get into but maybe we can end on this which is back in 2019 I, i used a wayback machine to look at placements a website, uh, which your guys' tagline at that point was get a great job in a new city. Earn up to 30% more. Our talent guides guide you through every step of the way, nothing until you succeed. Uh, Walk us through all the iterations you guys went up until getting where you guys are right now, which is grow faster with a coach. What were the iterations that you had to do and what were the things that ultimately worked and got you to where you are today? Yeah, as a founder, you got to deal with what the market gives you like i had we entered the business with a very sort of top-down ideological quantitative narrative and then got smacked in the face every which way by both base reality of human behavior and then macro reality of covid and the rise of remote work so our original business was about moving people our target sector was low-end knowledge work or high-end physical work, stuff that was happening. I think EAs or office assistants or data entry or, or ops associates, that type of thing. 100% of those jobs went remote. <laughs> so the, the geographic component of those jobs became irrelevant, you know, basically nine months after we started working on the business. The other thing was I had this huge corpus of economic data that I was working on. and 
all of the the labor market just got thrown into to flux. So all of the underwriting we were doing to predict whether or not people could do better work with earn more money became anybody's guess. So in the first six months post-COVID, everyone was taking salary cuts. Everybody was desperate to just have a job. During that period, we basically dropped the relocation aspect. We stopped giving people money. So that was originally part of the, the place and offering was we actually gave people cash to move. We stopped doing that and we focused purely on getting a remote job. And we became, we, we were always called ourselves talent agents, but we, we basically doubled down on the talent agent thing. So we give you free job search coaching, resume help, mock interviews. We would do that for up to six months. And if within six months you didn't get a job, we would you know say, sorry, it didn't work. And, and we would just part ways amicably. This was interesting. It expanded our group of people to a lot more people because Basically, we, in order to do that, we also had to drop the raise guarantee because we were like, well, we can get you a remote job, but we can't actually promise you that it's going to make you more money because we have no idea what's happening in the economy. Like all of our underwriting data at this point is moot. The, the, thing, the, the, the market was too dynamic. But what we found was that people loved it. They were pumped and they actually didn't care about the raise guarantee because they were like, I'm not getting a new job because I want more money. I'm getting a new job because I hate my boss. Or I hate my job. There was like tons of reasons. And so we got to work with a lot more people that were really excited to work with us and, and not just for this geographic component. After that, we then, we found still that the motivation piece was a lot. Also, you know, we'd get people to the conclusion. We, we did have a new job guarantee. So we, we stopped the raise guarantee, but it was a new job guarantee. And one of the common fit failure modes was that people would wind up getting a bunch of new offers and then they would keep their existing job and basically use those offers as negotiating leverage, which was a huge win. And we were pumped for them, but contractually, like they didn't know us anything and they didn't pay us. So we also had a lot of people that would just waste our time. Like they would come to the one-on-one coaching sessions, but not do any of the work in between. And we realized like we, we had two options. We either change the financial model or we become extremely draconian about booting people out. And we didn't want to build a business where the way that we succeeded was through like basically command and control and like dominating people's lives from afar. So we decided to become fee-for-service. So we went from remote job search coaching with an ISA to remote job search coaching with a monthly subscription. The monthly subscription was good. People really liked it. The consequence though is that coaching is one of these things where people have like waves of of need, right? So this month they have a lot of of need and then next month they're really performing and people kept asking us to pause it during the the, the down month. And and also if we were successful, which we wanted to be, the the subscription lasted 2 months or 3 months and then they didn't need us anymore. And we were trying to design an offering where people would keep paying for it even once they were on the job, but it didn't work. Like people were basically like, "Nope, see ya." So we switched to a a credit-based system. The oh, the other thing I'll say on the the subscription model actually was we had what we called the EPIC program, which was a start to finish program to get a new job. It was evaluate your options. That's the E, prepare, go through you know mock interviews and resume prep and everything. Interview, which was actually running the interview process and then close, which was negotiations. And what we found was with the new offering, people were showing up at every stage of those things. So go through our EPIC program. People were like, I don't, I just need the, I'm at the I, just help me with the I. So we built a more flexible system. So the way that our, our system works today, this is the model that we have today is we are a credit-based system. So customers come to us and they buy a package of coaching credits. The more credits you buy, the bigger discount you get. So if you buy four credits, it's like X. And if you buy eight credits, it's X minus some percent. So you're incentivized to buy more. You then book services using those credits. 
and you can book whatever bundle of services you need. So instead of us saying, hey, like you're going to buy this package and you're going to get one resume review and one LinkedIn review and three coaching sessions, blah, blah, blah. You basically buy eight credits and do whatever you need. If you need six mock interviews, we're happy to give you six mock interviews. If you want negotiation help, great. If you just need some reviews, resume review, LinkedIn review, no problem. So that's the operating model. All of our, we have coaches all over the country. We have 50 coaches that are actively uh, working with us. We have like 3,000 coaches that have applied. We're working on ways to expand the number of coaches that we can work with. And we also then expanded into B2B. So a lot of our coaches are just incredible coaches. Like they like doing job search coaching, but they also love doing leadership coaching. So we had folks reaching out to us and asking about uh, leadership coaching and life coaching and career coaching. And so we also expanded into that. We have a new brand for our B2B customers called Exec. It works the same. The company comes in, they buy a big pack of credits, and then they can distribute those and budget them out to their employees. And the employees get to use those credits for whichever services the sponsoring organization has activated for them. So they can turn leadership coaching on for their directors, and they can turn career development coaching on for their high performance or high potential ICs. So the the credit-based model is our core innovation. We still do coaching every single day. We've coached thousands upon thousands of people. And yeah, it's been quite a a journey of dealing with the chaos that the last few years has been. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. The maze, the idea maze, which every founder, uh, including myself, has gone through. This is awesome, Sean. This was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Really excited to hear how like the exec.com uh, initiative works out. So maybe when we'll get you back in 12 to 18 months, it'll be really here. interesting to hear what the learnings there were. But in the meantime, how can listeners of the podcast learn more about placement and keep up with you on social media. Yeah, if you are a consumer looking for help figuring out what to do next in your career and also figure out how to execute on that plan, go to placement.com and and work with one of our job search or career coaches. If you are a business, we have a few ways that you can work with us. You we can help your employees grow as leaders and first-time managers. We can provide a benefit, a life coaching benefit for the larger block of your employees if you want to stand out in the career market. And if you are in the unfortunate situation of going through a reduction in force, we also have incredibly effective outplacement programs that you can purchase, which basically sends your departing employees over to the direct-to-consumer side and, and gets them settled for their next job. Hate that is one of our offerings, but it, it, is, it really does make a very big difference. And, and we do a lot of that business right now. So, so definitely hit us up. So that's placement.com and exec.com. If you want to follow me, I'm at Sean, S-E-A-N, Linehan, L-I-N-E-H-A-N at Twitter. And I am over there pontificating every once in a while. I'm not the world's most active guy, but I'm present. Awesome. Sean, it was a blast to have you on. We'll talk to you soon. Ish. So good to, to meet you and, and hope this was valuable for all of your listeners. If you enjoyed that episode, would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.